Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now hey everybody just real quick before the show started uh this is steve and i just wanted to let you know for all the latest information on our podcast Hit us up on Twitter at E-I-L-F Movies. That's everything I learned from movies. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. If you're looking for incredible art or maybe gifts for an upcoming uh, birthday or Father's Day, Mother's Day, anything like that, Christmas, uh, you can check out Izzy's art at untidyvenus.etsy.com. You can also find us on all the uh, podcatchers like Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts or iTunes, whatever they're calling it these days, Podcast Addict, uh, basically... Google us, you'll find us, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. All right, on with the show. Everything I learned from movies With a one last plot holes a gratuitous It's time to get busy with your friend Stephen Dr. Uwe Boll has written, produced, and directed dozens of feature films, but is also one of the most controversial directors of our time. Uh, he has done such films as the Blood Rain, Rampage, and Far Cry series, um, as well as In the Name of the King, A Dungeon Siege Tale, Postal, uh, Assault on Wall Street, House of the Dead, and Alone in the Dark. Uh, but he also owns the restaurant Bauhaus, uh, uh, which is an award-winning German dining restaurant in Vancouver, has a doctorate in literature, and is the CEO of Bolu Film Productions and Distributions, which he founded in 1992. Dr. Bull was kind enough to join us on everything I learned from movies. Also, just a heads up, if it sounds like you're only hearing half of the conversation, uh, this interview was recorded a little differently, so it's in stereo. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind listening in both your headphones, you'll get the whole conversation. It'll sound like uh, me, Izzy, and uh, Dr. Bull are uh, attacking your brain. All right. Enjoy. Excellent. And how's uh, your appearance and everything on your end? It's very good. Okay, Sounds excellent. Good. Perfect. Just want to make sure. Excellent. Well, I guess uh, first and foremost, thank you for joining us. Uh, we yes. really appreciate it. Uh, as a, a fan of your movies and just film in general, uh, it's always great to be able to talk to uh, a renowned director and writer and uh, I mean, you do you do a lot in the industry, so yeah, you seem like an incredibly busy human being. So thank you so much for taking time out to talk yep. to us. But not anymore. I mean, after Rampage three, I stopped. Right. So since two years, I didn't make a movie. And so from this point of view, I'm more relaxed. I have time now, so it's all good. Excellent. Excellent. So you're <laughs> able to relax, and you have the uh, the restaurant up there in Vancouver. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, we have uh, one re- the Bauer's restaurant. What is like German food high end, and then we have the Blenheim is uh, more like a sports bar, pub thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we just bought in December. So I mean, it's I'm busy with all of this, right? So but but it's uh, it's different as uh, the movie production <clears throat> because it's like an ongoing everyday business. So yeah. and you have to get to into a rhythm. Like if you make a movie, it's basically mayhem for like two months or for three months of your life where you get nothing else done. 
basically. Excellent. What's your what's your uh, favorite dish at the Bauhaus? <clears throat> oh, that's uh, tough. I mean, the idea was to bring good German food to North America. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of German bratwurst and and stuff like this. So and uh, so the idea is so we have kind of a tasting menu of very high end food, and then we have German classics like the Wiener Schnitzel. We have a, a very good pork roast right now. So we always have like four or five German classics and we have more modern cuisine so that the chefs uh, can like uh, fulfill their dream of high-end food, you know? So uh, if, 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 if you get a very good German chef and you say you do only schnitzel, you're not getting that chef. So you have to give them the opportunity to show off what they, what they can do basically. Yeah. And you have the sides like uh, Spätzle and Kartoffelsalat yeah. and uh, cheese Spätzle. We have Wister Schnitzel right now. White Spargos from Germany. We saw Solondes, and we have the uh, Kartoffelsalat, like potato salad or uh, like pan-fried potatoes. Mm. You know, so uh, or mashed potato. And it's we go also a little with the seasons. When you go to winter, uh, what is like my favorite time for German food is is uh, for example from Cologne, where I'm coming from. Sauerbraten. It's like five days braised beef, all in like uh, balsamico, red wine, vinegar, and then eight hours braised. So you have basically the meat melts apart, and so you have a very dark, very good sauce. This was potato dumplings and red cabbage. Ooh, then you want to die. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you eat, and you, I always overeat. That is the thing. It's like I don't stop. Normally you should do two dumplings and then you stop. But I do always three dumplings mm. and then I'm full, so full, you know. <laughs> and um, we have also goose, like uh, like um, uh, crispy goose at Christmas time for four people, one goose. Also mm. with dumplings, with potato dumplings and red cabbage. The Canadians, they don't know goose. They all eat only turkey. Really? But, yeah, but, but is it because is the, isn't like the national it's, bird the Canadian goose? I have no I, idea. I <laughs> but it's true. It's like the goose. Okay. It's like Canadian, and that is the thing why I'm so surprised. I mean, you have also so many goose flying around here, but we're actually buying an imported goose from Quebec, so uh, you're not getting them here. I think they're all protected, whatever. And uh, but if you like duck, you like goose. Yeah. It's always what I, how I pitch it to the guests. I say, look, if you if you like duck, you will like that goose. And uh, the, the advantage is you don't have so much chest meat like a turkey has. Yeah. I mean, it's just dry, right? So I mean, what you want to do with all that meat? The goose you just have like basically a double-sized duck, uh, and and so you have a lot of skin, and a lot, and, and not too much meat, but <clears throat> little like chicken basically. But but the skin is to die. Yeah, sounds delicious. Mm. Jeez. <laughs> you, you mentioned you uh, did you grow up in Cologne or is that uh, where you yeah, just spent? Yeah, I Cologne, little town outside of Cologne, and uh, I uh, studied like university. I was in Cologne, and I mean it was because there was the bigger city close by. That is where I went to the movies. For example, we had only one little movie screen where I was, and if you want to see like what is out there, you had to go to Cologne where all the multiplex theaters uh, were, and uh, or the beginning of the multiplex theaters. I mean, at that point, it was not really, it was more, you had, you had more movie theaters inside the cities, yeah. in individual buildings, and you had maybe six or eight screens in them, but there were not like this kind of standalone 
mega uh, uh, buildings with a parking spot uh, uh, in front. That, that is that turned out. That was later, basically. I think that started only like 20, 25 years ago. Yeah, I think when I was a kid, it was a big thing if, when you got like 12 or 14 screens, and now they have 20 or 30 in some places. You know? Yeah. Nice. So uh, when you grew up, was there like a particular movie or like kind of movie that you saw when you were a kid and was like that? That's what I want to do. I want to. I want to be in the industry. That was Mutinity of the Bounty with Marlon Brando, oh. uh, like a pirate movie. And I was ten. I loved it. And I saw. Of course, at this point, you think all the movies kind of are kind of real adventurous to shoot too. You you go to uh, far away islands, whatever, and you live it in a way, right? So and. Uh, I grew up with a lot of Hollywood classics, like uh, Dr. Shivago, uh, Bridge uh, of the River Kwai, Kovadis, Ben Hur, like all that kind of movies, but a lot of Western. I love Western, I love John Wayne, I love like from El Dorado, Rio Grande, all that movies. Um, they were actually shown in the movie theater, but also a lot in TV at that point. You know, it was, uh, uh, I mean, I was thinking about 1974, you know, and it was like a lot of movies here. That, that was a time where the films running in a movie theater, you were never seeing them in, in, in TV before like two years later. Yeah. It took a while because there was no pay TV, pay-per-view. It was not existing. There was no internet. Yeah. Uh, like, I mean, it was, it was all just the four channels and yeah, if, if that in some areas. And they were years behind because they bought that huge packages always like from Warner, from MGM. So they kept showing the same movies. And uh, uh, But on the other hand, you could really watch the classics. Yeah. You know, and when you, when you had like a thing, uh, uh, like for example, <clears throat> I remember when Jaws came in TV, there was a huge event. Like all Germany was in front of the TV. And uh, because you couldn't also, I, I think a few people had at this point started with VHS, Beta Max, like uh, you could tape some stuff yeah. from TV, but, but uh, most of the people don't have that. Yeah. So you had to watch it right there or you will not watch it. Yeah, so it was still a luxury item to have a Betamax or yeah, VHS. That makes yeah. sense. <laughs> yeah. So you went to a school there in Cologne as well. Were you studying film or uh, did you have like, no, another I, job? I after uh, the graduation, I wanted to go to the film school, and it didn't work out, so it didn't took me. There was only two film schools in Germany, in Berlin and in Munich. And uh, so they didn't took me, and I was in a waiting loop, basically. So I went to Bayer Leverkusen. My father was a chemist and worked for Bayer Leverkusen, like aspirin and the pharma pharmaceutical industry. So I worked for over a year there, uh, just waiting, and then I got a shot to go to Vienna. Uh, and uh, I went to the film school there for like only two months and then I quit because it was horrible. It was just like uh, they had no cameras, they had no equipment. They were just talking about movies, right? So and I said like, yeah, talking about movies, I can go I can go back and talk to my buddies in Cologne about movies. I mean, <laughs> I'm here to learn to make movies. Where are the cameras? Yeah. And uh, nothing. And then I went uh, to Munich also as a guest student and I, I worked, uh, it was actually funny, they put me on a, uh, a graduation movie, uh, Bonnie and Clyde. And uh, uh, it was like, uh, yeah, but it was not the Bonnie and Clyde, it was like a German version of Bonnie and Clyde. It was horrible. The director was a woman, she was the whole time like thinking about what she should do next, but she never did anything, so nothing really moved forward. And 
it, it was like absurd. And also there I gave up. I went back to Cologne and studied literature and economy. Oh, and uh, I, um, there was a lot in literature and stuff you could do, like film analysis, analysis, whatever, like stuff like this. So I and my friend Frank Lustig, he wanted to make movies too. So we were stranded in just making it. So we rented cameras, shot some stuff, a documentary about a retirement home. We did like a, another documentary where we visited like 12 people. And two years later, we visited them again and asked them the same question, seeing what, how, how everything develops. And then we did that one more time. And then we gave that production never got finished. But I think in retrospective, that would be a very interesting film. Uh, to, to go like every two years to the same people, ask them the same questions for like 20 years or 30 years, it would be great, you know, but that material is lost. And then we did German Fred movie, uh, the first a comedy, our first movie, what then was even released in movie theaters, um, even if it was very trashy. But at that point, it was 91. Uh, <laughs> you, you were not, it was not so hard at 91 to convince movie theaters to play a movie. It was not like that over-invasion of films like today. And it was also like you had more, the audience was not so predetermined because of the TV spots. Today it's all advertising, right? The people yeah. go advertising leads you to. At that point, that was not so much. I mean, there were, there were a lot of people, they go, let's go to the movies. And they were really deciding in the movie theater where they go to. So there was a real chance for independent movie makers. Yeah, you know, it was really whoever had the best poster sometimes, just like, oh, yeah, yeah that looks interesting. Yeah. yeah. You know, and the, the German Fright movie poster was actually my grandma with a Patriot bracket in her hand, <laughs> uh, uh, like carrying it over to her little, uh, uh, she had like a, uh, a bomb, like a racket floor in her garden to destroy the neighbors. And I mean, it was absurd, right? But people felt that poster is really funny. Yeah, you know. So and and uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so that scored us some audience. They felt like, what is this? I just go and buy a ticket, you know. So and uh, yeah, I mean that times are totally over. Yeah, well, and also tickets are like fifteen dollars, where back then yeah. it was a dollar or two, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, of course. I mean, you're there more, was more a... willing to be like, oh, here's two dollars, I'll check it out. You know? <laughs> Yeah, and they played more like at that time when I remember they had more like, uh, for example, on one screen was not like one movie running at 11 and one at 3 at 5. It was like at 3 o'clock was a kid's movie and at 5 o'clock was something else. And then a lot of times our movies were just running at 10 p.m. Oh, you know, for like more like a R-rated audience. Yeah. Or, so and and uh, but that also created a chance, you know, to to turn a little into a cult movie where people think, uh, oh, let's go there. It's cool. At ten o'clock. Uh, for a reason at ten o'clock, it has to be violent or whatever, right? So and and that stuff also what disappeared, I think, out of the movie theaters now. Yeah, it's 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 unfortunate because there's a lot of oh, well, for example, like. With your movies, they can be very violent. There's nudity, there's adult themes, concepts, and all that. Is that just the more kind of movies you like to make, or is it something you feel like needs to be in theaters, and so that's what you're kind of, I don't know, kind of, I don't, I don't want to say forcing yourself to make, but just something you feel like you have to make? Or No, but I, I think um, it depends too, right? It depends where, uh, what time uh, you're in. 
You know, like that is the thing. I think a lot of when I did Blood Rain or whatever, like movies that were very violent in a way, but I felt also I have to do something more edgy as Underworld or Resident Evil or this kind of PG-13 horror where it's always so, uh, you know, so creepy, but nothing really happens. You don't see anything. So I made a lot of movies were kind of gory I did, House of the Dead, uh, uh, you know, where I felt like, no, I want to make R-rated movies. I don't want to pussy out only to get that PG-13 audience. And um, because I personally mostly don't like horror PG-13. If if a horror movie is PG-13, I have no interest to watch it. Yeah. Uh, And that is the thing, or when when you watch like, uh, uh, the, the uh, Godfather, like also even classics, Apocalypse and Now and Deanta, they're all R-rated right, right, movies. They are not like, uh, you know, so, and I think for a reason, because if you do it like Goodfellas, whatever, do it real. Don't, don't be, uh, oh, we have to be careful. We, you know, we cannot show this when the, the mobster gets yeah. smashed with or that. We can't, you know, so then they're cutting away or you show only the guy who hits him. So, and I, that is why I've always liked Martin Scorsese, for example, right? So I, I think when it's necessary, it just shows it how it is. Yeah, and, and I thought it was weird, like, when Martin Scorsese did, like, Hugo, the kid's film. It was like, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's, it's, it's a turn. But, yeah, it's definitely uh, one of those things with the PG movies where it's like, oh, yeah, they have to be killed off screen or, you know, the the... You can't see the red of the blood. It has to be black or something. I don't know. It's weird things like that. To get held back. It, you can feel the filmmakers holding yeah. back to try and keep that general audience. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I remember that with the black blood. That was the thing what they mentioned to us in uh, House of the Dead. If we would just color the blood from the zombies in a different color, we would have a chance to get a PG-13. But then we had nudity in and language. And everything. So I was just going to say. Uh... Still <laughs> So, but, but I remember where, uh, uh, because that very first video game based movie was, basically came to me on developed, right? So I, I had nothing to do besides shooting it. There was Sega had the rights already into that script. The script was done. So, and they were on set too. So they were telling me, uh, oh, it's better if it's PG-13, right? So, and I said, no, I mean, look at House of the Dead, the game. Yeah. In your own game, you shoot zombies into pieces so all the time, and there's nothing else happening in that game. I think uh, the worst would be to do it as a PG-13. Um, I mean, I won because I won the, the rights of, of the movie, you know. But uh, um, I don't know if they were so happy about it. But uh, you know, but but there are things where whatever in the name of the king is PG-13 because there's no necessity. Like there was no story point to make it mega violent. Yeah, yeah, it's more just like a classic, like uh, a hero's tale, basically, and so. Yeah, or this kind of movies, right? So, you, I mean, if you make movies like this, R-rated, it's like I think you lose a lot of audience from people that like the Golden Compass, the Harry Potter audience, like this kind of audience you can get with a movie like this, yeah. and um, it's it's better to uh, to tone it down a little. Yeah, just just a little bit. <laughs> I have to say though, in the name of the king, doesn't feel like you held back. Like you said, like I think adding a bunch of gratuitous violence to it just to make it an R might have felt forced. But I I don't feel that you hold back on any of your movies. At least that's my opinion. Have you ever felt no. held back? And we have blood in uh, in the name of the king. It's not that we don't show any yeah. blood or something. But based on its fantasy world, you don't need any foul language. You don't need any nudity. 
in a movie like this. So that was it was only the violent part where you felt like, okay, uh, how far we should go. And you don't really need to cut people in half, what we did in Blood Rain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll say like with Blood Rain, Alone in the Dark, um, in House of the Dead even, you mentioned you've done a few movies where they were based on video games or at least had the name and such. Was that something you particularly were looking into in the 90s and 2000s when you were doing that or just kind of the opportunities that came up? Yeah, it was really like uh, House of the Dead came out of nowhere and then it actually made money. Yeah. So and that is the thing. And so now I always had like investors. They they put money in my movies, and I did before Heart of America movie about school violence, what totally didn't make any money. And so they said, well, look, compare it. I mean, look at this, look at that. Uh, get more video game uh, movies done, and we give you more money. So I mean, that was the message. And. Uh, there were there was no um, chance to say no, you know. Then then they would never give me any more money. I mean that is the thing. What when you read a lot, like even in Wikipedia, or whatever. Uh, I used the German tax system, whatever, to to raise money. It's just total absurd. I mean it's like it sounds like when you read a lot of article about this that you can go to the German government and they just give you money yeah. because you know for a tax loss or whatever. But it's of course. Not true. Like what true was at that point is, and there was Hollywood got around thirty billion dollars from German investors at that point. Thirty billion. So a lot of Hollywood movies, uh, a lot of The Rings is completely cash flowed with German money. So what? Uh, so it was for like eight years, uh, investors could put money in film funds, and they could write their investments off in the year they put the money in. So it means like, uh, let's say you're a dentist. You make five hundred thousand bucks a year, uh, and now you have to pay two hundred fifty thousand dollars in taxes. If you put that five hundred thousand dollars in the movie fund, you pay zero taxes. All right. But you still lost two hundred fifty thousand bucks, right? Yeah. So you basically put all your money in that fund. So now, of course, you want revenues. Of course, you want successful movies, and that is what was so many times wrong written in the press, even in bigger articles. Vanity Fair wired about me. It's just not true that the people wanted a loss, invest the money, and save the taxes in that specific year. And that is, of course, interested in the reason why you find them bigger investors is you have a lot of people, for example, they they sell their business and have two million bucks profit. What then after before they pay a million bucks in taxes? They give you the two million and pay zero taxes, and they think over the next ten years that movie will make me more money back as the one million I would have left uh, after taxes, right? So, yeah. uh, um, and, and, and I mean that that is the the short form of it. But there were a lot of people out there trying to raise money, and I uh, was successful. I was successful raising the money, but also a lot of the movies actually made a lot of revenues, and and uh, that that. Uh, brought me in that position to keep going with Blood Rain, Far Cry, Dungeon Siege. Um, we were basically on a roll on this kind of movies, and uh, most of that movies were pre-sold. So it was like you say, I bought Far Cry, and then tons of companies buying the rights to the movie already, even if you didn't shot it so far. So uh, there was a different kind of uh, uh, money protection in it, as it is later with the Solomon Wall Street or my later movies where I was basically back on my own and you know, like and then you have a full on risk. You say I want I want 
to uh, to uh, present that story about the brokers, about the banking crisis, and if if the movie turns out shit, nobody buys it. Yeah, it's it's a lot like uh like like I saw the uh, documentary about Canon films in the '70s and '80s. It was kind of a lot like that, like selling the movie before it's even made, kind of, but. Also, if, if it's no good and you don't make any money, then you don't make future ones. But if it makes money, then, yeah, you have the opportunity for future movies. It makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's the market, right? Yeah. And it, was, it was at this point a, a very healthy DVD market. Oh, yeah. You know, even In the Name of the King didn't, didn't uh, work successful in, in the movie theaters in the U.S., but it, it did almost $30 million in DVD. So, uh, I mean, that is massive. You know, so and and that is the thing where, when people always look over ball the loser or whatever, I mean, um, or comparing me with Ed Wood, whatever, it's like bullshit. It's just not true. I mean, I made major movies. They were distributed around the world. They were in every supermarket from like Brazil to Japan, and and uh, Ed, Ed Wood people know only because Johnny Depp played him. I mean, that is the thing. I mean, it's it's not like. Uh, um, a lot of people they comparing me basically to the wrong people. Yeah, and, and another thing with, like with your movies, they have an incredible cast. Like how, like is there a major process in securing such a cast? Like is it reaching out to them to have them audition, or is it just putting out the casting call and they audition? Like you've worked with, like Ray Liotta, like who's worked with Martin Scorsese a lot, like Burt Reynolds, Jason Statham, uh, like uh, Michael Pare in a lot of your movies. Um, yeah. How, how's the process for that typically? Yeah, I mean, a mix. No? So you have people like Michael Pare, you know, and you can send him per email, or Clint Howard, Dominic Purcell. There are people who have a direct contact to, they also answer. Then you have also people like Jason Stesson who go only with the agent. Okay. And they say, they make me an offer, and then I consider it. Um, ben Kingsley. And I think on in the name of the king, they all like that concept. You know, it was the time when a lot of the rings came, the first one, and, you know, it was this kind of, oh, epic, let's do it. I mean, every actor in In the Name of the King was really excited about doing it, besides Jason Stesham first. Really? But yeah, it was, what was surprising, uh, we had Kevin Costner first interested in it, to do it, but, but he wanted to fly up with a private jet here just to meet me and wanted me to pay him, like, 35000 bucks to fly up. And I said, like, no, uh, we do the other way around. I fly down to you. It cost me 500 bucks from here. <laughs> and I meet, I meet you there, and we talk about it, right? Yeah. And he just yeah. totally didn't want to do it. And I said, like, I, I just don't get that structure. I mean, what do you want for real here with the private jet? Or is it maybe his private jet? And, he want, and it, it turned out it was his private jet. So he just wanted to get paid. So he has maybe a month his private jet covered or something. Right. <laughs> so it worked out. The movie didn't get done. And then the the manager, JJ uh, JJ Harris, um, she said, I I have also Jason Statham, and I think he should play that part. And um, yeah, and then Jason Statham's agent and the manager they made him do it. Because <laughs> if you look at the Jason Statham movies, right, he never did something like this. Yes, I think and at that point it was just like trans or transporter, right? Or I'm trying to remember chronologically like what he was in beforehand. But ah, right. stuff. Yeah. I mean, look at now Fast and the Furies or whatever, right? So he's like he's doing the same stuff over and over again, and he's this kind of uh, I mean British accent. That, uh, he doesn't he doesn't really saw himself in any kind of uh, period piece at all. 
And if you see after in Name of the King, he never did it again. Yeah. Well, it's a shame. He did a great job. Yes, yeah. and when he played it, he was super into it. And sword fighting, and so he was really good with it. Yeah. Horse fighting, he had to get adjusted to it. Yeah. So, but but uh, I think it was really good. And I told him also, like, look, here you have the opportunity to show some emotions. Your child gets killed. Yeah. You know, it's overall a revenge story and getting the, the wife back who's kidnapped. I mean, uh, uh, the other movies... He gives a shit about everybody because it's like this kind of he's a professional killer or, you know, like it's not like, uh, but he likes himself showing no emotions. Uh, you mentioned uh, Cl Clint Howard. Uh, we just watched Blubberella uh, again and uh, the outtakes at the end with Clint Howard might be my favorite part of that whole movie that I love. How uh, is he to work with? He's great. And, and he's, uh, uh, I mean, he's a good friend too. And, um, uh, he has always, uh, like, a really good humor. You know, he's a good table tennis player, by the way. Oh. And, uh, yeah, I, uh, I play very good, too. And then we had, like, big battles. And he plays uh, very good poker, too. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and he's a super professional. I mean, he and his brother, right, they grew up in an acting family as child actors already. I mean, he knows every lens you shoot with. Uh, and, uh, I mean... And he's super uh, professional, oh. you know. You can do improv with him, like Blorella, where you just let him roll, whatever. Right? So, <laughs> and then you, you can also just go with the script. He's, he, he always delivers. And, uh, no, he's, he's a great guy. And uh, that is the thing, like, when I have a good experience with people, like with Michael Perry, uh, uh, Clint Howard, then I come back to them. I asked them, like, if I have a movie like a Solomon Wall Street, Clint plays only a, a little part, the, web, the weapon dealer. But, you know, but, but, but uh, I always try to hire people I get good along with. And, uh, uh, and they know a little the, the structure. Um, because it's like, I feel always like you have a, a script or you have a scene, but then when you actually do it, you see if it's really working or if you have to change something. And you have to maybe let it structure it a little different. And uh, I think a lot of people are just so in love with the script that they, they just don't follow really what is alive on, on screen. And that was the thing when, when I did the Rampage series, whatever, that I had only treatments, right? So where I felt like I want to give uh, a Brandon Fletcher also the opportunity uh, to be a little, like, flexible, you know? So, and, and I think in some... Movies, it works very well. In other movies, like a Southern Wall Street has a full script. Uh, the, all the video game based movies had a, a full script. But some movies, it's, it's better to have a little like, uh, that is how you want to tell it, but you don't, you don't want to write it all uh, out. Like Tunnel Rats, the Vietnam War movie. Uh, yeah. uh, we had a treatment only because when I wrote it, I know what to shoot. I said, okay, I want that group. They, we tell the story about a whole war in the tunnels. But at that point, I had no clue where we wanted, where we would shoot it, how that would actually look like. So how you want to write a battle scene exactly down when you right now, you're just blindly thinking, okay, that is how we want to do it. Yeah, how can you say, like, oh, he runs down the left tunnel if there is no left tunnel? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, exactly, you know. And it, it's also like when we built the tunnels, for example, how hard is it to go through them? Yeah. You know, to crawl to them and then stuff like this, how you get the camera in. 
You get the angle you know, and the lighting and yeah, everything. Yeah, all that stuff, you know, and that is the thing where, where I think a little flexibility a lot of times uh, uh, is, is better. And there are actors that have a problem with it. Like Ray Liotta wants to, to script, right? He wants like to do exactly what is in the script. When you say, uh, whatever, improv a little, uh, you know, then he, he doesn't want that. He thinks like, uh, uh, no, 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 forget it. I don't want to do this. And, and uh, Ben Kingsley, also like more theater player, you know, he does, he wants that what is written there to get done. And, and, uh, uh, the noise is on my dog. He's playing something. Basically. <laughs> Oh. What was his name, Morris? No, Bessie. Come here. Oh, Bessie. Oh, okay. Oh, look at that sweet oh, dog. Adorable. <laughs> Is that a Mastiff? He has a Mastiff uh, boxer mix. Oh. Uh, I bet she's a great dog. Yeah, she's <laughs> And very, very playful. Yeah. It's like everything gets chewed up. What is, what is like laying around. No, but yeah, but that is, it, it's a different, different thing with the, with the actors, right? And then you have like this kind of, I mean, Jason Stassen was also very easygoing, flexible with Ron, Ron Perlman too. Yeah. I mean, there are people you can, yeah, you can throw things at them and uh, you don't confuse them with it. They just react to it. But Ray Liotta, also Burt Reynolds, I mean, Burt Reynolds was too old already to, um, there is no flexibility anymore. Oh. I mean, you're happy that they deliver what is written there, and you, if you say, okay, now change the whole script, you know, like that, it would be throw them totally off, and they couldn't, they couldn't do it. So to uh, to describe an Uwe Boll set, um, were, were you like very meticulous, like uh, you know, we have to get the scene done today quickly, or a little more flexible time wise, or? Yeah, like, how do you like how, to run your, how your do you, set? How do you like to run it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, half of the people would say I yell around. Uh, uh, but I yell only around till things are not done, right? So till things are uh, not set up. What I don't like is to come to set and all the actors are ready. And then you have like an hour of lighting and, you know, like everything endlessly delays. I want to go there and start shooting within 20, 30 minutes. Uh, and, and I mean, the technical crew is a lot of times an hour before me, you know, so, and then I just want to, want to start. And when I see, okay, we're moving, getting some stuff shot, I, uh, relax more and then we just continue. And, um, I like the more later things, what I always did, the handheld stuff. Uh, or steady cam, you know, like where you have no tracks, no dolly, because you're so fast shooting in all directions if you want. Yeah. You don't have to like change everything because of all that equipment standing around. Uh, so you're more, uh, you're faster and more, more flexible. And then I basically, um, if, if something is done good, if, if I'm happy on the second shot, you move on. Yeah, you know, and, and I mean, when you talk to people, like my producer, uh, uh, Dan Clark, he was the assistant uh, from Clint Eastwood before, right? And Clint Eastwood is the same. If a shot is good, moving on. But I mean, if he thinks like, why I should shoot that again if it's good, if the camera guy says it's good, if everybody's happy, why shooting it 18 times? And that is like, yeah. for example, Ron Howard, he shoots everything 20 times. <laughs> but he does it differently every time, right? Yeah, what he even told me, right? So I, I, when I met him with Clint and then, 
he said like, yeah, because we can afford it, we have enough money, we just, you know, so, but then you shoot things maybe also till death and you exhaust the actors so that they have no fun anymore doing the next take. I want the, the actors also energized after eight hours because you move on and not like uh, uh, 150, you know, like what Stanley Kubrick did also, like 30 takes, 40 takes. I mean, look at Eyes Wide Shut. I mean, it's for me, it's an unwatchable movie almost. It's, I think it's, you see it in the actors that they wanted to shoot themselves. <laughs> but you really feel the pain shooting that scenes uh, because they know they have to. Lily Zobieski is in, in the name of the king, right? So, and she yeah. told she, she was that girl in uh, Ice White Chat. Yeah. And she said, like, all, all her scenes, all her takes, she had to do 50, 60 times. The little girl takes, right? So, and, and I mean, uh, uh, she said, like, the, the, everybody got insane. Was one of the reasons Harvey Keitel quit. And uh, Sidney Pollack took that part over because uh, Keitel just couldn't do it anymore. He said, like, that take was perfect. Like, I'm not doing it anymore. Like, what the fuck, right? So, and, and I, I'm there totally with Harvey Keitel, right? So where I would feel also, like, why are we doing this here? It doesn't make any sense. And, uh, um, yeah, as I said, Ron Howard, Stanley Kubrick, also Scorsese, I have known to do a lot of takes. But Spielberg, Clint Eastwood, known for moving on, like, two, two, two three times. Done. Yeah, if it works, it works, right? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so has there been a, a particular movie that you've done that uh, was like the the greatest experience? Like the crew was all in sync, location was great, everything went smoothly. Favorite movie to be yeah. favorite? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean there were two movies uh, close close to each other where I have to say this the the shoot was the best shoot I had. The one was in the name of the king. Because it was just a marvelous, like the sets, the how big it was, and uh, everybody worked together, and everything worked, and uh, we had like unbelievable sets in the mountains, in the forest, and on islands. They were, they were, so from this kind of director feeling, now I'm doing a big epic film. That was great, and the second was Postal, because uh, Postal Postal was uh, uh, so ridiculous that every scene was was just an experience where where you feel like, oh my God, should, are we going too far, right? So whatever, right? But, but everybody, when the, when the dailies came, they were laughing their asses off when like the rough material came. And I mean, all the actors in Postal, they went too far, and but they went even like when Dave Foley was full frontal naked, that was not in the script. But there is a scene, he's just getting up and he's full frontal naked. I told him like, you are completely naked. Right, so yeah, who gives a shit, right? So and then, but that was postal. So it was it was a blast shooting that movie. But a lot of other movies were like Tunnel Rats was a real adventure in South Africa. But it was not. I mean, when shooting it was very hard. I mean, being like we were like black mamba snakes around. You need like snake uh, people clearing out the camp every day. And and uh, when you're shooting nighttime in the jungle, jungle. You know, as a director, even though you sit on your chair and then you walk through the jungle to the set and you see absolutely nothing, basically, you have only like a flashlight, and you know there are snakes everywhere. Yeah. You know, you're really in Africa in the thing. So, I mean, that doesn't make the experience so great. Because the whole time you think that we had a helicopter, he crashed down two times, 
uh, nobody got hurt, but the guy said, oh, it happens all the time with my old helicopter. I said, yeah, but why are you then sitting in it and flying around here? <laughs> it's only real Vietnam old military helicopter we could rent there. And um, so you had a lot of the Darfur, the movie, which shot also like in, in Africa. Uh, there was also like uh, snakes, scorpions uh, uh, around where uh, we always, you have to be more careful where you walk around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, when you walk in Canada in the forest, I mean, it could be a bear, but the chances are very low. We're watching out for deer droppings. Insects uh, are stinging you and you're dead. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, that that is the same where, where uh, Africa was, was uh, very very good in retrospective too, but it was also very hard. And uh, Eastern Europe with all the Blood Rain movies, uh, all that movies were, the Blood Rain were the most, most uh, the worst shoots, all three movies from all know. the movies. That, yeah, so and it, it had, for total various different reasons. So the first was in Romania with so much problems with uh, crew, corruption, Michael Madsen always drunk. You know, like you had, you had like really, problems uh, shooting the movie. In retrospective, of course, you can tell the, the greatest stories about the shoot. Do you have any you want to share with us? Yeah, I mean, I have. <laughs> it's like the, on the Blood Rain, the, the director's commentary is a lot, but no, but you have like, uh, um, whatever, like we save four or five dogs, right? So whatever, like stuff like this. So you, you walk down the street and it was like pissing rain and then like dog puppies floating around you. Oh. And you're, yeah, so everybody, we collected them, right? So, but then you, you know, like you're, you're totally fucked up basically after a shoot and then you the whole night, you have like dog puppies in the box and you have to feed them, you have to bring them to the vet and the next morning at seven o'clock you have to shoot. Like, but stuff like this, what in retrospective, I mean, one dog is still alive upstairs, Daisy, uh, uh, she's 15 now, she's alive. So, and uh, we found homes for all the dogs and we fed so many wild dogs there, but it took so much out of you. I mean, all that stuff, right? So we had like uh, car crashes, like we, uh, in front of me was like a horse carriage, got completely smashed by a truck. The horse got like, like smashed into a thousand pieces. And then we saw something, it's like something like you, you hit with a hammer on a on a watermelon. Oh my gosh! <laughs> the whole truck was garbage too. The the, oh, yeah. the was like smashed, bleeding. Whatever. So stuff like this, uh, where you where you go through it over the months, but it was tough, you know. And then I had like Michael Metzen, he bought guns. So oh, he came with loaded guns in my trailer and was completely hammered. Oh no! You know, like, and like had his guns in his in his hands, and I like, oh my fucking god, that idiot will just shoot everybody because he's like losing it. So that I took, uh, he had a bodyguard for good reason. So when I went out of the trailer, and then I took, grabbed the right gun, and took the bodyguard, you grabbed the left gun, out of his hand, like hold it back down, like so. I grabbed the right hand. I said, give me the gun right now. So then the other guy took the other gun. I mean, it's crazy. There are stories where it's at two o'clock in the night, you know, like you sit there, you wait for the next shot, and then a the guy comes in with guns, and you say, why he has guns? We are in the block, there are not even guns, and then the other thing is like, why somebody goes and bought that, that was the bodyguard, he bought that guy gun, guns, you know, so, and I mean, the bodyguard would known that he was out of his fucking mind, you know, like stuff like this, and that is, is uh, the, the moment it happens is not funny at all. <laughs> 
No, no. <laughs> no, then you really think like the evil whatever by accident just shoots in the air and doesn't see that whatever the guy on the light, the light guy, electrician is on, on top of you. whatever. Like, I mean, that is the thing, that is the risk. And, uh, no, yeah. and then on Blood Rain 2, there was a Wild West uh, Blood Rain where we had like a big gas explosion and the whole the little border town here in the Wild West city, half of that town burned down. So that was the biggest uh, the biggest insurance case we ever had in the movie, where like the railway station, everything burned down, and we couldn't do anything because that gas tank exploded, and then uh, it basically crashed down in a storage where more gas tanks were. Oh, oh no! Fire department said also we have to, we cannot go in, so we stayed uphill just looking at the town burning. It was also in the news here everywhere, and. Uh, so the whole night we were standing there like that was it, like that city will burn down. And then uh, uh, all the tanks exploded. They were flying through the air like up like a racket. Yeah, like fireworks <laughs> going yeah. off. Jeez. Yeah, and then you have the police coming. Everybody's coming for the next days and two days, three days, four days. Uh, they had to evaluate what triggered it. And what was like basically uh, who's injured, or, uh, not injured, but but from the uh, from the insurance. I have to let her out. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so we had a four days, five days delay, and then had to change the script. Yeah. We shot scenes before the fire, like where it looks like people start burning down the city. Mm-hmm. Actually, Michael Parade tosses the torch down in the blood rain too, and uh, so to explain why it is gone now, like. <laughs> <laughs> Did you shoot any footage while it was really burning? I was gonna say. <laughs> no, no, they had to run away from the cameras too. I mean, that was the thing. All the equipment was down there. My cell phone, my laptop. We were not allowed to go back down. Oh, so now, okay. I, because I said I bought, well, I had to go back down. I get it. And they were really like uh, <laughs> wishes, right? So I mean, the, the police, the, the police and the fire truck. They said no, 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 no. no. Uh, if, if some, if you go down and get your laptop, because I said I cannot fucking drive home without my laptop, my cell phone now. Yeah. So like yeah. I'm, I'm off communication that nobody will reach me. Uh, so, and uh, then we stayed till really like the next morning, so mm-hmm. everybody could go back down and get the stuff. Because nobody felt like I go home and come back, and then because what is that if the pissing rain starts or something? You know, it was. <laughs> Uh, not really summer where we shot it was more winter time so it was like everybody wanted to wait till it was okay to go down and it took like seven or eight hours and uh, oh yeah so in Blood Rain 3 was in Croatia where we shot the Blubberella movie too and uh, I mean it was in a way that was only the hard part because we shot both movies parallel Blood Rain Blubberella it was very hard uh Blubberella would be way better if we would have more time for it. You know, I actually, there are some absolutely wonderful scenes in Blubberella. Just laugh out loud. We were, we were just enjoying ourselves immensely. <laughs> no, that is the thing, and, and, and I think like half of it turned out very good. The other half could be way better, and with more time, you know. And and uh, Lindsay Hollister is so good also, and then she that was on set waiting, 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 and then a lot of times we just couldn't do the. Uh, we told her like we get we have five minutes now for Blubberella after spending two and a half hours on Blood Rain, and uh, but I needed the shots done for Blood Rain. I just couldn't like have a total half ass half shot Blood Rain movie because that triggered the financing also for Blubberella. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that that was the series. Yeah. <laughs> so you're you're retired from filmmaking now. Like, even if a dream project or anything like that comes up, there's there's nothing else you you want to do in the film industry. No, I mean, I always said like I'm not retiring because I'm, I'm I don't want to make movies, but it's right now you basically with blockbuster gone and all the DVDs gone, you have basically uh, the only refinancing is Netflix. Amazon, Hulu. So, and they, if you make a movie and they buy it, they don't give you a lot of money. Okay. They don't give you a hundred thousand or something like this, but how you want to make the movie, how you want to refinance the movie. So, the only way is now we pitch things. I, I pitched various things to them. So far, they didn't uh, did anything because I want that they finance the movie. Okay. You know, if they get it worldwide, they have to pay it. Because, I mean, there's no other revenues if you give it exclusively to Amazon or, or Netflix. We even offered to do a In the Name of the King TV show. Oh, wow. Oh. It would be good. Yeah. yeah. Or like yeah. if it were to before Farmer was born, right? Why he is Farmer, whatever. Like So and I also said, oh, you know, right now, we don't know. And then I was in talks with, with Fox uh, because they had In the Name of the King. And they said, if Disney buys Fox and Hulu is owned by Disney, then maybe there could be something yeah. to do for Hulu, right? If, if Fox has a little more influence there with some properties they own, they maybe we can do uh, TV uh, for Hulu there, you know? So, and there was a hope, but Trump stopped the merger. You know, he didn't let Disney buy Fox so far. So uh, that, that delays everything. And I mean, Amazon, I just don't have any contacts to them. I have Netflix a good contact, but Amazon so far, that you, you can basically file something to Amazon, but it's like kind of anonymous contact. I mean, it's just like, it doesn't sound that the right person will read it. Okay. Yeah. Are they looking for more like the PG-13 type stuff, like for the stuff they're financing or? Yeah. I mean, that was the idea was in the name of the king. You can do a PG-13 TV show, like 12 episodes each an hour. A little more, I mean, Game of Thrones is soon over. So you could, you know, you could do something uh, in that you don't have to do it so brutal like Game of Thrones. You can do more PG-13. And, uh, and, and, and then you see, you see what can happen. But uh, they didn't want it, you know. So uh, that is the thing. I mean... Other ideas, there were from time to time individual projects where uh, I felt that that could be interesting for them, but also they said, no, we consider it, if you produce it, then we consider it to buy it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, but there's no benefit to it. Yeah, that makes sense. No. Yeah. <laughs> so that means I maybe come back at one point, but maybe also not. I don't know. It's I, I mean... Uh, I think most of the, the, the TV shows on Netflix, like the episodical ones, are better as the individual movies they do. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the movies they're doing are be- really bad movies. Like Brad Pitt, the War Machine one, it was horrible in Afghanistan. The uh, I just watched the Clive Owen one, the Anani or whatever, yeah. the yeah. sci It was horrible. Yeah, they feel very much like a, the made-for-sci-fi channel movies to me. <laughs> yeah, with better cast. Yeah. <laughs> they spent they more money on that stuff, but they're not really engaging, you know? And then I watched the one with Paul Rudd, what plays in Berlin, that oh, yeah. sci-fi scene. Did you watch this? I don't even know what I think so, no. 
No, there was like Paul Rudd plays a killer, actually, totally strange. Oh, wow. And then there was another guy in it, uh, a well-known actor, plays in like a spy saying, but it was also horrible, like totally boring, where you're like, well, why do they do this? Then the Adam Sandler movies are mostly shit, they do it. Yeah. You know, they're also not good. So, I don't know. It's, it's uh, uh, I don't know what's uh, in what direction it will go. Nice. Well, are there like any any movies in the past couple of years that you've really liked, or like any particular series and stuff that you're like like a fan of? Of course, I, uh, I mean, of course, Breaking Bad. Uh, you know, uh, then well, Narcos is good on on Netflix. I like that. Mm-hmm. I like the El Chapo one. I like House of Cards. Was great. Now it's over. In a way, I mean, one. I cannot imagine to show it to do a last season without Kevin Spacey. Yeah, oh, it's gonna <laughs> yeah. be awkward. I mean, I don't know how they start. Like, the president got shot. I mean, you have to. It has to start somehow that they get rid of him in episode one. Uh, I don't know, but that will be the last season then. And it, I mean, it was a great show. Uh, Ozark was good. Okay. Jason Bateman, it was very good, and I like Billions. With uh, uh, on on HBO. Oh, I like, yeah, 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 no, that is the other one. And I like two Ballers. Ballers, yeah, that's right. That's very good. And I like uh, Silicon Valley. Very yeah, nice, excellent. Yeah, it's just always curious to hear like what what other filmmakers and stuff really enjoy, like like when they're at home watching watching movies and stuff. So. I mean, I watch. I basically watch everything, right? So, actually, today I I watched uh, The Foreigner. Oh with yes, John and Pierce Brosnan was very good. That was yeah, that really was uh, that was incredibly well done. We thought we we saw it uh, what about six months ago mm-hmm. when it first came out on DVD. Yeah. Good stuff. And, yeah, and, and yeah, it's the thing. It's like a lot of I mean, there's so much product what runs through the the screening service streaming services that you almost lose track. Yeah, and in, in the movie theaters, they're only focused on that huge huge movies. You know, and and uh, so and that is kind of uh, sad, you know. And when you scroll through new releases, also I think you overlook a lot because the movies, like Rampage Three, was on Netflix, but then within a week it it disappears from new releases, yeah. and then you like you don't find it anymore. Only if you really type in Rampage, right? So like Rampage or I, Uwe Boll or. Uh... Brendan Fletcher or something, and that's like yeah. we do. Yeah. <laughs> and then I like I liked uh, uh, a blockbuster. I really like that you walk through the alleys and you could see the covers and see what is it. Yeah, you know, and, and and so you picked. You had more. You spend a little more time to pick the movie you want to watch, and you also picked a lot of movies. I at least picked a lot of movies where I never heard about it before. I went into blockbuster, and and. There was a longer shelf life on this, in a way, as now it is online. Yeah, I mean, that's like in the mid-2000s, I, I used to live basically a block away from a blockbuster, and they had that unlimited pass. That's how I found like great movies like Idiocracy and you know all these ones that just kind of fell through the gaps as far as like being yeah. movie theaters. But it's more, more experimental, kind of mid-range movies, and kind of unfortunate, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So besides the restaurant, I think I read on your uh, Twitter handle. Are you doing a podcast now as well? Yeah, Overball Raw is, uh, but it's basically only me, right? I don't have guests or something, and we do like 
five to ten minutes videos and Gary Otto uh, he basically puts like clips in or photos in very funny stuff too and I commentary basically whatever is in my mind so sometimes about movies sometimes about politics sometimes about dogs whatever <laughs> and uh, uh, I'm, I'm not so disciplined to I have weeks where I give him three videos and I have also two weeks or three weeks where he gets nothing from me because I just don't feel like it to uh, talk about the same stuff over and over again, you know. So um, it's kind of fun to do it. You stay, you stay in contact with a lot of people, commentary about it on Facebook or whatever. But uh, it's also you feel like, you know, like there's so much stuff what we should do on the planet in general uh, that it's just like words. You know, I felt the same with the movies, that you make some movies, you point for some problems out, but then it, you feel after a while all my movies, or in general movies, they have no consequence. You know, people say, well, oh, you know, we care nothing, we cannot do anything about it. And it's kind of crazy. It's like uh, um, to, to see this. And when you see now what, I mean, in retrospective, I think Trump, in a way, of course, it's like a lot of things he assume is absolutely horrific. But he shows how much you can do as the president when you give a shit about everybody. I mean, in retrospective, think about eight years of Obama, he was always too scared to do anything. And Trump is just doing it. True. You know, like, you, you know, Obama could also, like, in retrospective, you could think, like, Obama could sign, like, presidential orders and saying, fuck it, whatever. Uh, uh, <laughs> Medicare is for free for everybody. You know, like, or whatever, or I pardon everybody in jail who is for drug possession in jail. I pardon everybody. And then you would have, like, one and a half million black people getting out of jail. You know, like, he could do that, and nobody would stop him. They would all flip completely out on it, but, but, but nobody could stop him. And I think that is the thing what Trump now shows, is the real... Uh, 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 the power of a president, I mean, most of the things he's just doing for personal benefits, you know. But, I mean, if he says that guy comes out of jail now, they let him out of jail. There's nobody who can stop it, right? So, and that is the thing. Or if he say, says, we, I mean, look at the tariffs on all Canada, Mexico, uh, Europe. Uh, uh, you know, like, yeah, the, the Republican Party is against it. He has no majority whatsoever to do this, but him and his buddies made that decision and they just do it, you know, and, and I still think, like, when you see uh, tariffs on uh, steel, where now all the steel comes from? What country didn't get a tariff? India. India yeah. You know, so, and, and maybe he has some stocks there. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm serious. I, I think, like, they, they, that guy is not doing anything where he's not in the end making money on. Oh, and so, and, yeah, if you put 20% tax on steel from Canada or Germany or whatever, then it's too expensive for the American companies to buy that steel, so now they buy all the cheaper steel. Is your cat? Yes, Kester Story <laughs> yeah. came to say hi. <laughs> they buy all that cheaper stuff from India. So the Indian steel company is massively making more money. So, I mean, that is the thing, right? So, wait, I think like uh, uh, he just puts things into action and, and uh, doesn't really care about the consequences, and it's, it's too bad because. Uh, there are so many things where you feel like uh, we should do uh, drastic actions. Look at the plastic in the ocean. 
Yeah. Just yeah. watch the doku about it. I mean, like the whales dying from having like 20 kilos of plastic bags in their in their stomach. Uh, it it and then they have like little companies fishing the plastic out. Why not as a world initiative saying, you know what, we spent now 50 billion bucks cleaning out the ocean. Makes perfect. I mean, I'm okay. that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm, that is the thing. I, everybody basically would say, yes, let's do this. But nobody makes idea. Nobody comes up with shit like this. What actually helps everybody and costs some money? They always have ideas only what cost money and destroy more of the planet or the social environment or the you know like cutting things out of uh, uh, kids' uh, after school program yeah. or school lunch or whatever. Like, I mean, that is the, the cuts they do. And then you think like, okay, and then they give uh, five hundred billion to the military every year. And they don't even know what to do with the money anymore. Yeah, like, I don't know, we can so, make another faster jet, I guess. Yeah, you know. So am I hearing a Uwe Boll for Congress 2020? Oh, there you go. <laughs> passport. I don't know, you can still run without a passport. I think you cannot be president without a passport. So, 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 uh, prime, prime minister then of Canada? Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> I have a German passport. Oh, you're just German. Oh, okay. <laughs> but but uh, no, but I mean it's it's kind of uh, um, interesting to think about uh, uh, being more active in politics. But as we all know, politics is also like very uh, grinding, disillusional work. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, when I see our oh, candidates here going from house to house, can I put my sign up? Whatever you know, like stuff like this, and I mean, I just cannot do this. Do this, but but uh, I, I feel like uh, there are so much things that could be easily changed with the right person saying, "Let's do it." And it's too bad that Trump is is not doing stuff like this, yeah. you know, yeah. like where you just uh, uh, jump over over the shadow. And and there's a thing where I mean, if he if he meets the North Koreans and makes the peace deal, I would be extremely happy. Yeah, it'd be yeah. great. I think it, if it would happens, be. You know, you know, blah, blah, blah. But like, they didn't get anything done with North Korea for 30 years. Only threats and sanctions, right? And that guy has nuclear bombs. They are able to fly to California. I mean, let's face it, right? So it's yeah. the best to be friends with him, to do something, to, uh, to, get, uh, to get him like they have no money. So if we can buy the nukes, basically, and take them off, that he cannot throw nukes anymore, and they have more uh, uh, economic stability in North Korea, then uh, thank you to Trump. He did it because he gave a shit about it. You know, like that is the thing. I mean, if we get him doing five, six things like this, it would, so it would be not all uh, only negative, you know. And, uh, yeah, I mean... Yeah, say every president has positive and negative. He's just got some uh, some positives to do to catch up. <laughs> yeah, but, that is the thing with him. I think he he wants to be uh, loved, right? So I, I think he wants to be that people like him. And so if 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 more people would maneuver him into the things where he can get like laugh from the public, yeah. you know, if CNN, if I mean he's watching CNN every day, and if they say that was good. I think he could believe that. I mean, he would be so happy, right? So, and that is the thing. He's only so unhappy because he gets it every day in his face, you know, and he has to learn, like, if he's doing other political directions, uh, uh, then he maybe uh, uh, gets gets also different feedback from the mass media. So he's going to retrain him. 
There we go. Positive <laughs> reinforcement. <laughs> Positive reinforcement. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the thing. I think it's a lot of around him are total uh, uh, assholes. The Bolton, whatever. Like you know, he has a lot of people around him. They have. They are war hawks. They they want war. They don't want peace. They don't want the people getting along with each other. And and so and I think that yeah, you know, and that that is the thing what drives him. Uh, uh, in, in the wrong directions uh, a lot, but on the other hand, um, he uh, he we know he will never read like five pages, so it's all important what he reads on Twitter or what he like like if so if there's something where he thinks he can totally be the hero of something, right? So what I said with the plastic fishing stuff. If there would be something that could maneuver him in that direction to think, let's get the fucking plastic out of the ocean, because I own a beach holiday resort and it's full of plastic garbage. Yeah. So it's like just <laughs> motivation to get Margo Lago plastic free, and then he's doing it all over the ocean. I mean, that would make sense. Absolutely. You know, and maybe we'll do this. If, say, we, can't, we don't go to your beach resorts anymore because the, the ocean is too dirty, I mean, that could finally trigger in him saving the planet. Yeah, so dump the plastic on the lawn of the White House, and then I'll get the initiative started. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so on a completely different note, but I am super, super fascinated. Is it true that you're into amateur boxing? Yeah, I boxed 14 years. Oh, and, uh, uh, and then I, at one point I stopped then. It was, uh, was too old. And But I love boxing. I follow up the professional boxing, uh, HBO everywhere, and... and uh, no, I mean, otherwise I wouldn't felt comfortable to box that critics and that. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that's true. There's your Netflix series. <laughs> yeah, I, know. I know, like the boxing resume. So and uh, no, but I, I love boxing. It was uh, a good part of the when I was young, and uh, it, it disciplines you too. I mean, it's yeah. it's uh, it let let you go through pain, and uh, I always say what you really learn in boxing is to take a shot. And not, you know, like like not getting. I mean, everybody can hit a a defenseless person or a, a boxing bag, but if somebody hits you in the face and you still <laughs> stick with the plan, then then you learn something, you know. So that that is, I think that is the thing. It's like uh, it helped me later in the job too, to not panic, to you know, like like. Uh, uh, when things happen, like when that city burned down and stuff like this, um, or we had a situation, also a gas explosion on in the name of the king with uh, the two with Dorf Lundgren, where people were really burning in front of us, so we had to tackle them down and put the flames out. It was another insurance case. It was also in TV. It was also not our fault. It was a guy who refilled the, the tanks mm-hmm. close to an open fire. Oh. What? Yeah, total idiot. And they, they, his company got completely uh, nailed by the police later and also from the insurance they had to pay the damage. But it was on the last shooting day on December 22. And um, so and there also like within a few hours, everybody was like the people were in the hospital, were, like eight people in the hospital. Uh, and then I said, look, we have to finish the movie. It's the last shooting day. We have to keep shooting. And, and a lot of people didn't felt they should do it. They felt should not shoot, right? So, but I said, look, tomorrow, Dr. Lundgren fly, flies home yeah. to Europe, and we're completely fucked if we don't shoot the last one and a half pages of that script, you know? So, and, and, 
as I said, like at so a lot of situations like this, I normally stay very calm. I again, uh, you know, I'm not flipping out. I'm not like uh, 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 panicking or something. And that that is also, I think, where boxing helped uh, over the years where I did like four or five uh, trainings a week. So every training was a full contact sparring. So you, you, I, I went for years of my life through the immediate threat, like you don't pay attention, mm-hmm. yeah. get knocked out, right? So I mean that is the same, and that, and that is different as playing soccer or football or whatever. Is I mean you have to pay attention, or your health is in risk, mm-hmm. and that is the thing where I, I, I think that made you sharp. Well, you know, okay, now I have to really pay attention here. I have to be really, you know, that is the same whatever what I said with Michael Madsen with the guns. You don't <laughs> have him being able to keep that gun. Yeah. yeah. So it's like if I grab that hand now, it could be that you have a fight with him, right? So and then you 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 know then you have to be in a situation like this, fast and firm. You know the way it's clear, like that hand, you will not let him have that hand go up. Like when you grab the hand, you will tackle him all the way to the ground if it's necessary and turn his hand and get that gun out of his hand within the second. And I mean, he was so drunk, he didn't even care. I, I, I had it, you know, but, but that is the thing where, but, but stuff like this, I think that boxing and stuff like this prepares you for situations like this where you have to uh, do something uh, um, like spontaneously, but, but, but fast. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have him walking with the guns into the set. No. Oh, yeah, not. You could have a mass panic and, and you could have like dead people yeah. based on poor accident that he's losing it and shoots by accident or whatever, right? So all people want to take it away from him and you have the real struggle and you have a total disaster. So, and that is the same. I, I mean, uh, um, and, uh, that are uh, situations I think where it helps that you that you went through experiences of fear and you still have to get keep the shit together well uh of course the name of our podcast is everything i learned from movies and you kind of went to what you've learned from uh boxing being able to take a hit and whatnot but uh are there other life lessons you'd like to pass on to others that you've learned through your experiences yeah i mean before i have to leave because i have to go to my restaurant but uh uh no, I think if you have to put a life lesson out, I, I would say like uh, nothing is so bad as it seems in the beginning. You know, like like I mean that is over the years when you have like uh, ups and downs and uh, pri- in your private life and your business life and everything. Um, almost every situation uh, looks totally different a few months later. So I think that is what I try even in the restaurant industry when people are totally stressed out. We have so many waiters, they're so like desperate and everything, right? So it's like, uh, I think it's a good lesson to to not put yourself in a hole where you you think, ugh, my whole life is shit. You know, like nothing develops out of my life, whatever. I I think it's important to to wait for your chance and to, to be aware of your whole life, whatever, and try to be happy every day for various reasons, you know, I mean, the biggest yeah. is to be healthy and to be alive and stuff like this. And and I think it's important to have uh, this kind of, uh, like that you can step away from your own situation and see yourself as a third party, you know, and say, look, look at you right now. So uh, you want to be like this or you, you know, or you want to pick yourself up and, uh, 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 
thing about, I mean, that is the thing. When, when we shot the Darfur film and we really worked with uh, Sudanese refugees playing their stories again, right? So and if you talk to a mother who the baby got impaled in front of her on a spear, right? So then you think, uh, okay, I never, uh, I, I, I never say I'm a poor guy. You know, for whatever reason, oh, they hated the movie. I mean, and all that shit where we flip out about everything, whatever, like stuff, you know, like is laughable in comparison to uh, uh, you watch your children getting slaughtered or and, and, and she got raped after it, right? So when you talk to people like this, you feel like uh, uh, how happy we can be. Yeah. And, in and you know, context, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that that brings brings me back to a. Uh, in a way to Trump, we don't want the Wild West again. You know, that is the thing. It's like, you know, I think there is stuff what North America and Europe worked towards a, a society of empathy. And you don't yeah. want only the strongest survive. You don't want only like, you know, like you want, you don't want somebody who has a heart attack dying because the hospital has no coverage for him yeah and it's the thing i think where, where as a society we we worked our way in the in the last 80 years after the second world war out of all of this to say uh, we don't leave uh, uh, ill people or whatever behind and that is where the, the the government has to kick in and where they have to say you know and, and it's also like people the uh, when you see the school situation uh, that in Oklahoma every the walkouts of the teachers you know like I mean you cannot make 40 grand a year and then you have to spend 5,000 of your 40 to buy school supplies yeah. Yeah. it's ridiculous you know I mean, it's just <laughs> unacceptable and that is where you have to take it from the rich you know that is what I meant with the sound wars where we just cannot have Zuckerberg going from 5 billion to 80 billion you know, like, you know, like, uh, it's just unacceptable. You have to tax the rich. You have to tell them, look, you or you individual approach them. You know, you say, uh, 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 look, we don't use your money as you don't, you don't need your money in tax havens. If you give us 10 billion bucks, Apple, Google, they sit on hundreds of billions, right? That 10 billion we do only in schools. That would be wonderful. Yeah. And I think there is a chance if a, if a president would step up to this, right, to to approach people like this, like and not like what Trump is doing with Jeff Bezos, like giving him shit every day and yeah. trying to destroy him. You know, like that is the thing. If you approach these people on a different angle or different level, uh, I think you can convince them to give more money and not for charity, no, for real things that have to get paid every day. And and uh, and I think. That should be the a big job for the president or the next president, you know, to, to go out there and, and get individual uh, uh, support for things they have to happen now. And then they, we cannot just let it slide and have, uh, uh, think about the, the people that where parents have two jobs or three jobs. They cannot pick up the kids from school. Yeah. If you make the after school programs, you have them standing on the fucking sidewalk for six hours. I mean, that, but that's yeah. real. You know, that is real, and you cannot have this happen. That I think that's nice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. My yeah. afternoon yeah. program was go home and feed the goats, but... Yeah. yeah, for me, it was go play basketball, so, you know. <laughs> no, I mean, it depends what age you are, right? So, but, I mean, if yeah. eight 
it's dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, because you have people they know, oh, they're standing all their kids alone around. Like, well, let's get them in our car. I mean, it is different. I mean, you're 14, you maybe give a shit that your parents don't pick you up. But, you know, I mean, it depends. But uh, uh, but I think that there are things that are happening right now under Trump where uh, it's, it's, like, very tough to repair this. After a while, look at the national parks. He cuts them down 80%. How can you do this? You know that is that is like that is monumental historical uh, mistakes and unre like like you can I mean in four years if he gets not elected again then you can reverse it but if he stays in the second term then they have everywhere like fucking whatever things built there where there was the Yosemite Park I mean that is ridiculous you cannot do this and that is stuff where I think also like the thing about the the the, the idea of the Republican Party is to keep good stuff from the old. You know, like conservative. To be conservative means means in a good way you keep the good stuff and, and the, the bad stuff you replace. So, and they're going right now with the flow to do bad, bad stuff. Hopefully a uh, strong candidate. Sounds like similarly with your mind comes forward and uh, <laughs> we can get this all yeah, taken care of. But, yeah, but And uh, for your podcast, where, uh, where can we find that? What's the... Uh... Just YouTube. 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 On YouTube? Oh, okay. Yeah, if you put in Overball Raw, you get various videos. They're normally, as I said, between 5 and 15 minutes. Uh, start subscribing to that right now. <laughs> Good. Thanks so much. I see, yeah, Dr. Bull, thank you for joining yes, us. We really appreciate it. Let's uh, keep in touch and good, good luck with the restaurant. Perfect. Thank you. Bye. Our next vacation, we'll come up and visit you. That's right. <laughs> First be on me. Okay. Oh, excellent. Ooh, hey, excellent. we're halfway there. <laughs> okay, have a good okay. night. Thank you so much. Good night. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was not exactly what I expected. That was amazing. I love Uwe Ball. Yeah. I, I mean, it, you hear all the legends about, like, you know, he's quick-tempered and blah, blah, blah. But yeah. You hear certain podcasts complain that he's trolling their Twitter account. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I mean, he seems like a nice guy. Yeah. I mean... And I, I, I'm down for German food. Absolutely. Mr. Bull, I would love to come out and have dinner with you and hear just more stories about filmmaking. Yeah. You're uh, an incredibly fascinating man, and I am interested. Yeah. God, we, we love doing these interviews, because you, you never know what you're going to get. And uh, I want to talk more dog rescue! Send me the puppies! <laughs> yeah, it's always, always good talking about the puppies. Yes! <laughs> Uh, so yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, of course, you can find us on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all under Everything I Learned From Movies. Everything or I Learned From Movies. Specifically, E-I-L-F Movies on all those uh, those handles. Um, Izzy has her art up. And... Yeah, if you love adorable dogs, I hand-painted every single American-recognized dog breed. Still got to work on the, the UKC chart. But uh, they are available as a poster in my Etsy shop, only 20 bucks. I'll roll it up and mail it to you in a tube, 11 by 17 size. Um, yeah, available at Untidy Venus, like a goddess who's very bad at housekeeping, <laughs> Etsy.com. Excellent. Of course, uh, Uwe Bull, you can find him on YouTube at Uwe Bull Raw. Uh, hear his, more of his uh, stories and insights. Isn't uh, that also his Twitter account? Uh, yes, yes. He's also on Twitter at Uwe Bull Raw. Yeah. Uh, and of course, uh, right now we're doing Disaster Month. Uh, so some of the greatest disaster, well, not the greatest, uh, some disaster movies of all time. Like and, what, 
Well, uh, depending on when this is, I've uh, got The Happening, Daylight, Geostorm, Pompeii, oh, San God, Andreas. Is, I'm so excited. I'm yeah. so excited. We didn't just watch Geostorm because we hate ourselves. We've now done it for the podcast. <laughs> exactly. Oh, we saw that when it came out, guys. Just because we were curious. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, so yeah, until next time, I'm Steve. And I'm Izzy. And this is Everything, Everything I Learned from, from Movies. Have a good night, everybody. Snails and puppies! I love dogs, Steve. Arf, arf. I want to go rescue a dog in a foreign country. <laughs> let's okay. do it! Let's go to a foreign country! And then, ooh, let's go to Vancouver, eat a meal through a bowl, and then rescue a dog. Okay. Yeah! Wait, is that a wolf? Ah! <laughs>